The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And it is my honor and delight to welcome my personal friend and professional colleague, Mary Jo Forbord. Mary Jo and her husband operate Prairie Horizons Farm in Starbuck, Minnesota. Not only is Mary Jo a farmer. She is also a fellow dietitian and member of the Hunger and Environmental Nutrition Practice Group within the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Most importantly, Mary Jo has switched her farming strategies from being a conventional dairy farmer to being an organic beef farmer. So we're going to talk about some of those changes that she's experienced, as well as her intimate knowledge, truly, of the food, health, agriculture connection. So Mary Jo, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Well, we have had so many wonderful conversations about farming and food and how that connects with public health, and I've had the pleasure of visiting your beautiful farm. And I wonder if you could just start out by telling me how many years your family has been farming and how your family got to this part of the country. Well, I'd love to tell you about that. I really enjoy history and especially history of the land. I don't think I'll be able to answer exactly in years because my farming ancestry goes back across the Atlantic to a time when taxes were paid in goat skins and butter in Norway and in Germany. And my husband's lineage also goes back as far as we can trace. So all of our ancestors are farmers. Both my husband and I grew up on farms, actually farms that were only about 25 miles apart from each other but in very different terrain. Uh, Minnesota is a place that has three biomes where there's a southern region with the tall grass prairie. You know, For 10,000 years, the tall grass prairie was diverse and uh, people, uh, many tribes lived on the the tall grass prairie and were sustainable for nearly 10,000 years. And we live on Prairie Horizons Farm, which is right at the cusp of these two biomes where it switches to the oak savanna. So where I grew up, it's very, very flat, and where we live now and have farmed for the last 33 years, it's rolling and beautiful, and there's rocks and trees and different soil types, and my home farm is much more flat and not as diverse in terrain at all. So we have a history of farming and then farming together since 1980. We assumed the role of the dairy farmer, Laverne's family. My husband's family was in dairy. And we grew up with a a conventional type of farming where we had on my farm livestock, but then switched over to grain farming. And as long as I could remember, my dad did use pesticides on the farm as we would talk about it uh, Later on in his farming years, he recalled dusting the dairy cattle with DDT, and I remember my mother dusting the garden with chlordane, and my husband's family came to using pesticides and conventional methods a little later on, but both of us remember our fathers being uh, hospitalized for pesticide toxicity, and we always felt it was really wrong to use pesticides or poisons on food, but never really felt like we had a choice or an alternative 
But as we moved along in production in the dairy industry, it came to be that, you know, there was a price volatility that lots of times we were doing all this work all day long, each day and every day. Dairy cattle need to be milked a couple times a day. And we were often doing it below the cost of production. And the cost of production was set on a global market and it was the only way that we could make money in that system was try to produce more, try to expand our herd and it just didn't appeal to us. We felt like if we couldn't make a living on 480 acres, we weren't being creative enough and we just felt that it we were large enough and that the path that really appealed to us more, which wasn't really a path, was diversification. Because what that meant to us was that we wouldn't need to get larger, but what it also meant was that the milk truck wasn't going to back up every other day and we weren't going to get a milk check every two weeks. And we would be in charge of finding our own markets. And that felt a little bit like a choice between a brick wall and getting larger and, you know, continuing to, you know, market a commodity that had no differential as far as quality, at least not a recognized differential, or kind of jumping into the abyss because in 2002 there really wasn't a lot of talk about grass-fed beef or especially grass-fed milk or organic milk. The organic truck uh, didn't come anywhere near our farm. There wasn't a a market for it. So it it was kind of, it was a very tough choice, I will have to say. And my dietetics career came in really handily at that point because we desperately needed me to begin working off farm. When we had three children on the farm, it worked best for me to be on the farm and also a full-time employee on the dairy. But if we weren't getting that milk check and we were going to transition our farm and we, we thought about what our land really needed and wanted, which was perennials. We thought about what my husband's skill set was, which was a very close association and understanding and affinity for working with animals, especially um, cattle. We thought about what we wanted to do to produce healthy food to people. And so we came up with transitioning to organic and putting our previous acres, which were in corn and and beans and uh, alfalfa and wheat, into a more perennial uh, mix and really sought diversity. But there's always those issues of where are you going to get the health insurance and where's your income going to come from as you make this transition. So that was the time that I was employed by the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota and and really got to see some wonderful examples of people doing the very things that we were hoping to do on the land. So it was really this farmer network that really helped us along to make that transition. And and we've been transitioning ever since. Well, it's interesting. You know, I went back and read a newsletter article that you had written almost 10 years ago where you described this transition from your family history was in dairy farming. And at one point, you were offered an opportunity to produce more milk, and you jumped on it. I mean, who wouldn't? This was a great chance, and it involved the use of RBST, or growth hormone, that would be injected into the cattle to produce more milk. And you had some problems with the herd, though, and you described that your veterinary bills became so large. And if I understood you correctly, that was a real transition time for you. You recognized that this wasn't working financially. You had to do something different. You gave up the dairying, switched over to the organic beef. And in making that transition, you really faced a lot of doubters, right, from the family and the community, but you stuck with it. 
We did, and I don't think that anyone who works with natural systems and sees what's happening would ever think that there's anything stagnant about it. You know, you wake up in the morning and you need to reassess and observe and and balance and all of these things, but it's so much more rewarding than waking up in the morning and saying, how many more shots are we going to need to give today to our cattle? And we didn't really believe that we could farm organically because there was so much media hype about it not being possible that it's uh, you know not going to feed the world all of this we were worried about you know what what people would think if we were going backwards all of these things and then once we started experiencing you know that the cattle do not get sick when they are rotated under fresh pasture each and every day and those, those pastures are full of diverse plants that give an array of nutrients to the cattle and we found that the cattle would live a lot longer you know in 2002 We bought heifers or young females that uh, hadn't had calves yet, and some of those heifers are now still our herd cows, you know, 12 years later. And that's what we really started to see when we were in dairying is that when we were kind of pushing the cows to produce more, they were suffering the effects. And then we were trying to take care of different illnesses and mastitis and things that would occur. So what we were experiencing really reinforced that we were going in the right direction and that nature has some really wonderful ways of producing healthy soil and healthy foods if we can give it a chance and learn how to observe and how to see what synergies nature has within an ecosystem. First of all, to understand what ecosystem we are in. As a child growing up in this area, I was never informed that there was a tall grass prairie or that prairie consisted of anything more than one grass. You know, then there's hundreds of species of grass and forbs and flowers, you know, throughout the season that make up the tall grass prairie. But we are so ecologically illiterate that we don't know what we're starting with. We don't know about soils and we don't know topography. We don't know what's going on in aquifers and That's the part of it that I think the prairie started to teach Laverne and I is we started to wonder about this diversity and started to appreciate the brilliance of those prairie hills that hadn't ever been plowed. And we really started to learn and fall in love with the prairie and decided to really pattern our our farming system after the natural systems, trying to understand and work with those natural systems. I remember a talk that you gave at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting where you showed your cattle grazing. And I should just remind our listeners here that your cattle eat nothing but grass or grass and forbs. And you live in Minnesota. So people always say, right, well, you can't do that. You've got all that snow up there. And there you had pictures of the cows grazing in the snow, finding the grass. So should we just help our listeners understand that, yes, indeed, we can graze cattle even in Minnesota? I think that certain breeds of cattle, especially those that have not been bred for just one thing and one thing alone, like, for instance, milk production, a dairy cow would not do really well outside in Minnesota. So, you know, switching the breed to a hardy animal who can grow a thick coat and providing that wind protection and always access to what's called stockpiled pasture and lots of fresh water, they do wonderfully. We have never had a respiratory disease in our herd. In fact, my husband always 
says, and I can vouch for that, it is true. We have 150 cattle, and we spend more on our two German shepherds at the vet than we do on our whole herd of cattle. And and we used to have about that many cattle that were dairy cattle, and we spend $10,000 on them. So you, you get an idea of the, the difference in the health and the, you know, as dietitians, we know this, that good health is, you know, one of the foundation pieces of that is good nutrition and exercise and less stress and access to a healthy environment. That's really what we're giving our cows and our cattle that are out on pasture. And so I think, you know, there's an art involved in rotational grazing. It also involves a concept that I think especially Americans have forgotten about, and that concept is rest. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that cattle really disturb the prairie. But that's what the prairie needs in order to survive. If you don't disturb a prairie by either the hoof action of the cattle or it used to be the bison or the, the elk or some large herbivore or fire, then the prairie goes away. It becomes invaded by all kinds of other trees and things. And the tall grass prairie, it needs sunlight. So under the trees, it kind of fades away. And so, you know, some people have an idea that prairie is like a museum piece. And even conservation services for years thought, well, we're going to buy this and we're going to preserve it. And then it grew up into all kinds of nasty buckthorn and Siberian elm and, you know, invasive weeds. And there's been a recent turnaround with conservationists to really understand what we're talking about when we're talking about disturbance needed as part of how the the prairie evolved in concert with with fire and drought. So these prairie plants, they're very diverse, very deep-rooted. They are built to take the extremes that we are experiencing. My husband's been farming for 40 years, or we have together farmed 93 years, if you can believe that. But We've seen extremes in the last few years like we've never seen before. The rains are coming earlier, much heavier. The water shuts off. The rain seems to shut off in the middle of the season. And one thing that can really get you through that is diversity, especially diversity that has a lot of deep roots. So one of the things that we really find about our system is it's very resilient. You're always going to have something that works if something doesn't. And, you know, even Wall Street investors got this a long time ago. Nobody puts all of their money into one or two really risky stocks hoping to really make it big. However, I suspect if we think about it, that's kind of what we're doing with our food supply. We've chosen a few crops, two in particular for our region, corn and beans, and we've invested everything that we have pretty much in those. And when dietitians look at those two crops, you know, we can see that they're not the most nutritious of crops Dietetics 101 is eat a diverse array of fresh foods or minimally processed. So we can't use those foods in those ways that we would get the health properties that we need, and we certainly don't get the diversity. Even our farm programs for many, many years now have just been investing in those two crops, and they're storable starch. They're not nutritional stars or anything like that. So when we hear the tagline, and we've all heard it, we we need to feed the world. Yeah, but feed the world what? And dietitians will understand that when we're talking about feeding the world, we're talking about calories only. Now, that does not make a healthy diet, just an excess of calories, especially if they're from two crops and we're wasting 40% 40% of our of the foods that we eat. So we are in such great need of diversity in cropping systems, and yet we've lost 75% of the diversity from our cropping systems since 1900. And we've picked these two, 
and we think we can feed the world with them. And I hope that people will become more connected and more knowledgeable about the riskiness of a food supply that's based so heavily on just two crops. I'm looking from my Midwestern eyes now. I'm sure there's other areas that have more and a bit greater diversity, but what we have here in the Midwest, and we're in the heart of the Midwest, is corn and beans. Mm-hmm. Let me take one break to remind our listeners that they are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are talking with Mary Jo Forbord. She is both a fellow registered dietitian and an organic farmer based in Starbuck, Minnesota. One of the things that I really loved about you is your commitment and your understanding, your conviction that nutrition was so integral to health. And as a farmer, I think you can understand this on a much deeper level than any of us who just work in the health professions or in a different profession altogether. But I wanted to spend the second half of our time together talking a little bit about some of the challenges that you are facing now. And you mentioned climate. That's a big one. But because we've been friends for so long and we've emailed each other, I know that there's another threat facing our public health and our farmland and our farmers and their farm families' health, and that is the exposure to herbicide and pesticide drift. So tell me a little bit about what you're experiencing on the farm and what your life has been like on the farm since these chemicals came to be the norm. Well, and keeping in mind that these were chemicals that my husband and I grew up with, so we've had experience with these chemicals, but the fact of the matter is we don't know how much experience we have had and how that has affected our lives because there has just been not enough studies. You know, when I was growing up in the 1950s and Laverne as well, there were no protections for children. And, you know, there may not be still in countries around the world or even slip-ups here in the United States. And children, of course, or even embryonic tissue, that's where, you know, some of these chemicals, the dose gradient for children is so much higher. And, you know, there's a pretty new area of research, transgenic research that does wonder and study those questions like what effects do chemicals have and some of the reasons why we switched to organic agriculture were because of illnesses that had happened in our family and now in our current generation my sister has had cancer two of my brothers have had cancer and they have been the types of cancer that are related to pesticides and we lost our 22-year-old son to a rare form of childhood cancer. Now, none of these cancers will I ever in my lifetime be able to relate to a particular pesticide. That is part of the problem is that in order to prove it, you can't really isolate these chemicals in the environment or understand how they might transfer from one generation to another. But we do have to question our assumption that we really need pesticides in order to have a healthy food supply. You know, it just doesn't compute when I even say that. Why would you need toxins to have a healthy food supply? And I think we have to really take a look at what we've been told about agriculture and how we've been disconnected from agriculture because we are one of the very first 
generations, maybe a couple generations before us, that where most of us have been disconnected from the land. I mean, that's not part of human history, to be disconnected from the land. And when people really don't know or have access to knowledge firsthand, they have to believe somebody. And there's a lot of mixed messages there. And for the dietetics profession, there's a call to kind of stay in your scope of practice, which means after food gets to the grocery store. I don't think dietitians can really have the effect on public health that we need to have by staying in a food supply that is composed of ingredients that are not the best for our health, nor are those ingredients treated in such a way that leaves our environment or our bodies free of toxins that may be very harmful for us. So what we're experiencing right now on our farm is that last year we had this run-up in land prices and we had corn at $8 a bushel and it created just kind of a fervor to plow up even more tall grass prairie. Our region is tall grass prairie and there's still some hilltops left. But in spite of the loss of prairie identified as the most substantial decline of any major ecosystem in North America, we still are destroying it. So evidently, we just are not getting the connection. And with that came just a rush to make more money by planting even more corn and beans. But the glyphosate that's been used on the Roundup Ready crops now has resulted in resistant weeds. And so now there's various approval processes going on that are looking to bring back some of these older pesticides that my husband and I grew up with. And they're pesticides that showed a little bit of a dip in usage when glyphosate really came around. Banville is one of the common names, and now um, dicamba is then it's a very volatile pesticide. And what that means, volatility means that that pesticide moves over the landscape. So in certain climatic conditions, that pesticide will pick up and move a half a mile, a mile. Sometimes you don't even know where it comes from. So now we're talking about much more than just drift, just about the neighbor next door. That's serious enough. And for us who have a very diverse orchard in memory of our son, we had a private fruit breeder who has all varieties of cherries and plums and pears even peaches in our Minnesota climate, currants and all kinds of berries, we're right next to a field actually surrounded by conventional agriculture. And so as much as we are trying to do everything that we can to produce healthy food, this may be the showstopper. This may be the ultimate. There is no way that our 30-foot buffers on our organic farm are going to be able to be enough to withstand either drift or especially the volatility. So in my experience with farming, there's a myth awry here, and it's called the myth of coexistence. As an organic farmer, I am not aiming weapons of mass destruction at conventional farmers. However, unfortunately, from the other, from this side of the fence, it definitely could appear that way. And, you know, even in Minnesota, we don't have any wind speed laws. So I work with the farmer's market here in the town close by, and we just lost a vendor to pesticide drift. She had her whole garden lost to overspray, and they they did spray her tall grass prairie too because if, if you don't know anything about a prairie, you may think it's, it's a bunch of weeds. In fact, anything that's not your chosen crop may appear to be weeds, but in fact, they may be medicinal or food crops, but if we've 
only incentivized through our farm policy the growing of a very few handful of crops, then everything else just becomes categorized as a weed. So what I'm really worried about, Melinda, and what causes me some despair these days is that as a society, we've become so disconnected from the land and how our food is grown, and it has become so complex to wade through all of this and to keep up with the, the public input that we think that somebody else must be doing it, somebody else must be looking out for our good, and I have yet to find that that is the case. So I think what troubles me most is that people need to be connected with how their food is grown now more than this is a very, very crucial time. And I would appeal to our profession of dietitians to not start in the grocery store. Please start in the field. Please go see where your food is grown. Ask how it's raised. Ask who raises it and where. And do get connected with the land. You'll never be sorry. It is so wonderful and so necessary to do at this time. Mm -hmm. Mary Jo, we just have a minute left. In addition to having a better understanding of where our food comes from, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to do to help protect your right and your freedom to farm in a way that is not hurting your neighbor and protecting the public health? Well, I think that sometimes people start to question the certified organic, and we just had our organic inspection this morning, so I'm I'm really <laughs> current on this, and people start to think that this is not a rigorous process or somehow it's rigged or something like that. I can tell you that from experiencing both sides of agriculture here, both conventional and organic, that organic is extremely rigorous, and if you can't know your farmer then the next best thing is to have a third-party certification that you can trust, whether it's 100% grass-fed, certified organic. These sorts of things are really very important. Rather than, you know, sometimes I feel like I I have to justify my use of my non-use of pesticides or justify that I'm being an organic farmer or justify that I'm contributing to feeding the world and, you know, I'll say I contribute to feeding my community, and I think my community is part of the world. But I think we have to start with feeding our community first and really working on a food systems level, getting inside that food system, and maybe even getting our hands dirty, seeking out experiential learning, even talking across disciplines. I know one of the things that really changed me is when I went to the Moses conference and saw, first of all, what wonderful food they ate at that conference. Yeah. I thought, my goodness, I've been going to these instant potato type of highly processed conferences and wow, they really ate well. But the spirit of people taking their food back and younger families, people who are raising their children and trying out innovative things on the farm, go to those kinds of conferences. And one of the things that I saw at that conference was how the human gut so resembles the uptake of nutrients from the soil into plants through the roots. It was like an aha moment for me. It's like I knew we were related. I knew we were part of this ecosystem. And, of course, the nutrients coming up those roots, but not only the nutrients, but other toxins that may be in the soil, we ingest. We're part of it. We don't rule it. We are a part of it. Thank you, Mary Jo. That's a beautiful send-off for all of us, some food for thought. 
In closing, I want to thank Mary Jo for being my guest. Mary Jo is a farmer with her husband in Starbuck, Minnesota. She's an organic farmer, an agriculturalist, permaculturalist, a locavore, and a student and advocate of indigenous cultures. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Mary Jo, I want to personally thank you for farming the way you do because I know you're protecting public health and you are indeed feeding the world one community at a time. Thank you. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you.